with you, would you mind turning to the book of Hebrews and chapter 13? The book of Hebrews and chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to show verses on the screen here to my right. There are Bibles in the back, and if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those as a gift to you. We are studying the latter part of the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 13, and actually after this week, we're going to take a break from Hebrews all the way until the beginning of the next calendar year. We're going to do another message on marriage next week, and then a series about the, the Protestant Reformation after that, and then we come up against Christmas, and then it's the new year, and then we're back to Hebrews 13. So Hebrews 13, I'd like to read one verse, verse 4. Please follow along as I read from God's Word. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Father, we pray you would Use your word to impact every life here for your glory and our good. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. I don't need to tell you that there is a a real marriage crisis in our culture. I know that's not a, a news flash for you. A marriage crisis. Marriage for us in our culture has been redefined. Now two men can get married or two women can get married, an idea that was unthinkable not, not long ago at all. Marriage has been redefined and marriage has just been marginalized. It's been marginalized. Fewer people are getting married today because it doesn't seem as necessary. It doesn't seem very important. There is a marriage crisis in the culture and, and just as importantly, there can be a marriage crisis in our own lives right here. Maybe that's you today facing a bit of a marriage crisis, or you know someone who might be going through a marriage crisis. Husbands and wives can can begin their marriage with great affection for each other, and then slowly over time, almost imperceptibly, they begin to drift, and they end up drifting into a situation that is very much less than what God intends. And so, friends, every married couple needs to hear these words from God today. But God is addressing all of us. I hope you notice that. I hope you notice that. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So please don't say, I'm checking out of this sermon. has nothing to do with me. God is addressing every single person here, without exception. Whatever your season of life, single, married, widowed, teenager, God is speaking to you through his word. And I'd like to focus on this one verse, but, but take a little bit of a different approach than we would normally take. I, I usually just focus on that passage and unpack that passage, but I'd like to, I'd like to do kind of a um, theological exposition, if you will, of this one verse. I'd like to approach this one verse with three questions. Three questions. What, why, and how? What, why, and how? What is God saying to us? Why is he saying it? And how do we apply this to all of our lives here today? So first, the what. Track with me. First, the what. What is God saying in this one particular 
verse. We've seen the, the vertical call to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe from chapter 12. We've seen that vertical call go horizontal last week in biblical love, or brotherly love rather, in chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. And now that vertical worship, you might say, gets directed toward marriage and expressed in marriage in verse 4. Again it begins, let marriage be held, be held in honor. Be held in honor among all. And the word honor, it means to, to count as, as valuable, as, as precious. It's the word the Apostle Paul uses when he speaks of gold, silver, and, and precious stones. It's the word the Apostle Peter uses to refer to the precious blood of Jesus and God's very precious and great promises. So here, this verse as saying, in effect, view marriage as precious, a precious thing in your midst. View your own marriage as precious if you're married. View other people's marriages as precious. And view the institution of marriage itself as a precious thing. Make sure it is of great value and esteemed highly in our midst as Grace Church. And then... A second command flows from that. We read, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, the marriage bed is, of course, not talking about a piece of furniture in your house. It's talking about sexuality in a marriage. And God is saying, don't defile that. Don't, don't treat as profane what God has made holy and good in this case, sex in marriage. You know, there are, there are two possible errors when it comes to sex. Prudish rejection or defiling distortion. Prudish rejection or defiling distortion. Christians can sometimes do the first. And we live in a society that does the second. When God thinks, God thinks that sex is a great idea, a great thing in the right context. It's like a, it's like a fire in a fireplace. I, I don't know about you, I, I love a fire in the fireplace on a chilly night. I confess we don't need a fire in the fireplace in San Diego, but I, I love having a wood-burning fireplace in my home such that on a chilly of course, it's relative in San Diego. A chilly winter's night, you can have a fire going in the fireplace. I love a fire in the fireplace, but a fire outside of the fireplace is a destructive thing in your house. You just look in Northern California. These terrible wildfires leveling entire communities. And, and so sex is a good and, and powerful gift designed for this one context, a committed relationship between one man and one woman in the context of, of marriage. And then God adds a, well, a sobering motivation for us, doesn't he? He says, for, let me give you some reason for that particular command, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The sexually immoral are, are, are those who engage in any sexual activity outside of the fireplace. And that would include, for instance, premarital sexual relations. And so, if you've ever wondered, does the Bible really speak against 
premarital sexual relationships. Well, yes, it does. Here's one place. And the sexually immoral would include homosexual activity as well. And then there's a second group in view, the adulteress. The adulteress, of course, break their marriage vows with the sin of adultery, which is a very, very destructive thing. And so is biblical grounds for a divorce. And God tells us here, I'm going to judge those things. I think that's meant to sober us and motivate us. And yet I know, I realize that many of us, including myself, we come out of a background, we're probably rescued by Jesus out of a background that included immorality. That's the air we breathe for many of us. That's the culture we lived in for many of us. And others I know have or, or even will stumble in those ways. I, I realize that. So the Apostle Paul's words to Christians in a city called Corinth, I think, are very germane for us and important for us. Corinth, Corinth was a context like ours. A city filled with, with many distortions of God's good gift of sex. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, well, if we have that slide, do we have that slide? No. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, uh, sorry, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of, of God. So did you hear it? sounds a lot like Hebrews 13.4. Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you, Christians in Corinth. Couldn't he say that to us? Maybe he could say that to all of us. Such were some of you, Grace Church. But you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Did you hear that? God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. But here's good news. God, in His love, took on flesh. He bore our sins that we might be washed cleansed of our guilt by Jesus. We might be sanctified, set apart for God's holy purposes. We might be justified, declared righteous once for all with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So for all who turn from their sin, for all who repent of their sin, and they trust in Jesus Christ, they, as it were, surrender to Jesus. They hope in and rely on His life, death, and resurrection. Friends, they are washed sanctified and justified. And if you've yet to turn to Christ, please hear this, friend. Please hear this. There's a sobering warning in this verse to you of judgment and great hope God holds out to you as well in His love. If you would but turn from your sin, forsake sinning against God, rely on Jesus Christ as it were, surrender to Him and trust in His finished work for you, he will, he will wash you. He will set you apart for His purposes. He will declare you righteous. And I, I just urge you to do so. I urge you to turn to Jesus. Hear that good news and, and believe.
So that, that's the what, isn't it? It's not too complicated. I, I would sum it up as honor marriage as precious and guard marriage with purity. Honor marriage as precious and, and guard it with, with purity. That's, that's the what, but that is, that is assuming a lot. And this is what I ran, un, ran into this week. That is assuming a lot. It's assuming an entire understanding of marriage that we're quickly losing. So we need to ask the why question. Why? Why does God honor marriage like this? And why does he want us to honor marriage like this? Why? Well, to answer the why question, we need to see God's design for marriage, his, his original blueprints for marriage, as you find in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, God sovereignly creates a man, puts him in a garden paradise. And catch this, there were trees with everything good for him to eat. It was like buffet time on the produce aisle. But there was a problem in paradise. God says it's not good that the man should be alone. And it's, it's a very striking thing. It should just leap out to us in the creation account, shouldn't it? In the creation account, there, there, there is this constant refrain of, of everything being good. God creates light, dry land, seas, plants, trees, sea creatures, birds, beasts of the earth, livestock, and says it's good. The constant refrain is good, 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 good. God steps back and goes, everything is very good. And he sees Adam by himself all alone. He says, oh, not good. Not good at all. Now, I think that's because we're made for relationship in particular, but I just, I just wonder what tipped God off. You know, it's, uh, Adam, with a puzzled look on his face, looking at all the trees, trying to order a pizza. I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to do. God says, not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, literally a help opposite him or corresponding to him. You might think of two puzzle pieces that fit together. They're clearly different, different shapes, different sizes, but they're made to complement each other. That, that's the picture. Now, if you're a single here or you're, you're widowed here, please do not misunderstand. The book of Genesis is not teaching that you are inadequate in your current season of life. The life of Jesus Christ the life of many like the Apostle Paul testify to the opposite, right? Both, both lived out their lives to the fullest as single adults. Both had a high view of the calling to singleness that God gives to some as well. So Genesis 2, I do not believe, is saying you are inadequate in and of yourself. But it is saying the husband and wife complement each other. They are, they are different from each other, but absolutely equal with each other. So God says, he needs a helper. He needs a compliment. He forms Eve, and as it were, he brings her down the aisle to Adam. And in the context, Adam has been naming animals. Giraffe. Zebra. Aardvark. And then he sees Eve, and he is stunned, and he is jazzed. And he breaks out in the first recorded human poem. First poem recorded 
of, that we know of, of humanity. He says, this at last, <laughs> just think, at last, finally, this at last, this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And friends, that was the first wedding and thus the first marriage. And here's my point. Marriage was created by God. Marriage was created by God. That, that speaks to what we call the sanctity of marriage. It's a, it's a sacred thing. It's a, it's a holy thing. The sanctity. The sanctity of marriage. So marriage is not a human creation. If marriage is just something human cultures invent and human governments regulate, then by all means we can redefine it and marginalize it all day long. No problem. But it's not that. It's a creation of God. It, it, is, it is holy or, or sacred that way. And that's why, friends, that's why God says in Hebrews 13, 4, honor it as precious. I created this institution. I invented it. That's the sanctity of marriage. But we also need to see the exclusivity of marriage the exclusivity of marriage, even here in Genesis 2, the summary verse, the inspired narrator, Moses, he writes after that scene, he says in verse 24, he says, therefore, okay, after the first wedding, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast or cleave to, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is quite remarkable. The man leaves the people who conceived him, right, gave birth to him, changed his diapers, provided for his every need in a culture where family ties were huge. He, as it were, leaves that environment to do what? To hold fast or cleave to his wife or cling to his wife. And the idea is of... of um, kind of being glued together. To use the biblical term, they, they form a covenant, a solemn, binding agreement. I think David Atkinson in his commentary puts this well, and he captures this, this sense of covenant about the idea of how they hold fast or cleave. He says the cleaving, cleaving there is the covenant faithfulness word. Notice this, friends. It points to the committed faithfulness that one promises to the other that whatever the future holds, the couple intend to face it as a pair. That, that's the exclusivity of marriage, isn't it? Isn't that put, put it well? Committed faithfulness, one promises the other that whatever the future holds, come what may, they're going to face it together. Now, you might say here, Tab, doesn't the Bible give examples of marriage that are not exclusive? And I would say yes. The Bible is incredibly realistic. It has examples of bigamy and polygamy. But here's the thing you need to notice. Those examples in Scripture of those arrangements, they never end well. They are always a train wreck, okay? Study it yourself. 
They do not go well, and you can just figure out why. And maybe even more importantly, Jesus, whenever he's asked about marriage in the Gospels, what does he do? He always points people back to the original design. He always says, have you not read? In the beginning, what's he doing? He's saying, go back to the blueprints in Genesis chapter 2. And there you find this exclusivity. The man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. And did you notice they, they shall become one flesh, one entity before God. That is a profound, exclusive closeness. And some of my favorite words at a wedding. I, I've had the privilege of officiating a number of weddings. And one of my favorite moments would be when I am leading the couple through their vows and the words that I love to accent, the words that I think drive this home are forsaking all others. If I've done your wedding, you may have noticed I, I accented those words. And forsaking all others. That, that captures it, doesn't it? That drives it home. You are vowing to forsake everyone else. But, but one single person. That's the exclusivity we're talking about. I told this story at the marriage retreat recently, but I thought it would bear repeating. I experienced this when I was pursuing my lovely bride. For those who don't know her, she is, she's from Korea. She's Korean. And so as we were dating, I didn't interact with my father-in-law hardly at all. He doesn't speak a lot of English. I speak no Korean. But I, I love him very much. Uh, he's kind of... Um, He's a straight shooter. He's kind of a salt-of-the-earth guy, just a straight shooter. And so finally I knew I wanted to propose to this beautiful lady. And I was at their house, and Sung was upstairs. And I had a moment with her dad. He was watching TV. And I sat there and I said, um, Mr. Ko, could we arrange a time that we could talk together sometime soon? And he was immediately on to me. <laughs> and I kid you not, the next words out of his mouth were, Sangana! He was calling for Sung. Sangana! Screaming at the top of his lungs for Sung to come downstairs. I'm sweating bullets. God, oh man, this is not how I had planned this. Then there's a bunch of dialogue in Korean, and then he looks to me and he says, what are the result of your prayers? I just can't wait to use that line if someone wants to marry one of my girls. I'm going to spring that line on anybody who wants to talk to my girls and they're willing to uh, tell me the result of their prayers. And I said, I, I want to marry your daughter. And then there was more Korean talk. And then finally Sung translated to me in tears. She said, my father is asking you, when you are old, and she is old, and her hair is gray, will you still love her? And I said, yes. And then there was more dialogue in Korean, <laughs> and more sweating on my behalf. And finally I said, 
what's happening? <laughs> what's going on? And she said, my dad is asking me that when your hair is gray, will I love you? And I said, what would you say? <laughs> and she said, I said, yes. And then her father looked at me, and I believe, if my marriage is correct, he just said, okay. I, th I think that's pretty much the sum of the conversation. So Sung and I make our way outside a bit stunned, a bit shocked, saying, what just happened? But here's my point. My father-in-law did not do a theological study on covenant with me that day. We did not study the words one flesh in the original Hebrew. But he was crystal clear with me, this is going to be an exclusive relationship, buddy. This is going to be committed faithfulness. You are promising whatever the future holds. And that's what we have vowed to each other. Do you see why Hebrews 13.4 is in your Bible? Do you see why? We honor marriage as precious because of the sanctity of it. God created it. It's a, it's a sacred bond. And we guard marriage with, with purity because of the exclusivity of it. It's, it's a covenant between just two people by God's design. But there's even more to marriage, isn't there? We honor the marriage covenant because it points to God's covenant with His people. You know, it's no accident that Genesis 2.24 shows up in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul calls wives to respect their husbands and husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. By the way, guys, that's an invitation to die, okay? To die to yourself. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24, and he comments, and he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying something with the coming of Jesus has been unveiled that was not previously clear, that marriage is to be a picture, a living illustration of another relationship, that between Jesus and his bride, the church. Oh, and if you see that, Hebrews 13.4 will just leap off the page, won't it? It will sing for you. We honor marriage as precious because we are honoring Jesus' love for his people, for us, and his sacrifice to be our husband and we his bride forever. And we guard marriage with purity because we want to reflect a God who is always, always faithful to his people. If we are not faithful to our spouse, we are saying that our God is not faithful to us. And friends, isn't this picture of marriage this holy, exclusive relationship. Isn't this picture of marriage what our society needs from you and me, from all of us in this room, single or married? Isn't this what our society needs to hear? There's so much confusion about marriage. It's just a contract you can break easily. 
It's just an agreement between consenting adults. A man, a woman, two men, two women, three people. I'm sure that's coming. But God says, this is my holy creation. A holy, exclusive covenant. And you get to represent that. You get to communicate that. Wouldn't that be encouraging for people? I want to, though, I want to insert, before we think about how this plays out, I want to insert a word to the divorced. Because divorce is a, a sad and painful reality in our society. I, my, my parents divorced. I grew up in a divorced home. But I, I, get, I get some of the pain of that. And God allows for divorce. If there's been adultery, if there's been abandonment, and if you've been sinned against in those ways, friend, we want to care for you and support you. And yet I realize as well there might be some who in looking back in hindsight realize that yours was not a fully biblical divorce. And there's no changing that now, perhaps. And certainly we repent where we need to repent. We fix what we can fix. We restore what we can restore. But some things sometimes just can't be fixed. And I, I want to acknowledge that. And I want you to be also very aware of Jesus Christ who paid for and cleanses us from all sin. As we prayed in our prayer meeting this morning, the ground is entirely level at the foot of the cross. There, there's no self-righteousness before the foot of the cross is there. The ground is entirely level, and this good news is true for all who repent and believe. In Jesus, you are washed. In Jesus, you are sanctified. In Jesus, you are justified. So please hear that and go home rejoicing. So we've seen what, we've seen why. The why is the sanctity of marriage and the exclusivity of marriage. Then how? How should we apply this? How does this apply to all of our lives here? How should we apply Hebrews 13, verse 4? Let me suggest three ways. Three ways. First, we would honor the sanctity of marriage. We would count marriage as precious by honoring the sanctity of marriage. That we would resist the cultural narrative. We would believe and hold fast to the reality that marriage is created by God. It's not a human construct. And so it can't be redefined in any way we'd like to. And as, friend, you walk that out in a gracious way, you are salt and light to a hurting world. Aren't there people all around you who want to know, can marriage still work? Don't you know people in your workplace or neighborhood who are wondering, can marriage still be possible between two committed adults? Don't you know there are people around you who are suffering the fallout of the cultural lies, people who have bought into the, the hookup culture and it's left them empty and destitute? Don't you know they are all around you? And you are salt and light to them as you live out God's wisdom and his love in this way. We can honor 
the sanctity of marriage, and that provides such a hopeful message. But if you're married, if you're married, of course, in particular, honor the sanctity of your own marriage. Honor the sanctity of your own marriage. You might ask, is, is my marriage still precious to me? You might ask, is my marriage as precious as it once was? And if not, friend, why not? See, you must believe that this is the most important human relationship you have. You, you must believe that. You must take that to the bank. You must not lose sight of that. This is the most important human relationship we have because it's so easy to drift in marriage, isn't it? It's so easy to drift into kind of the, the getting stuff done marriage. You know, we're, we're president and vice president of family operations. We're getting stuff done. We're an efficient team. But marriage is so much more. It's so easy to drift into the parenting marriage. And parenting is a great blessing, a great joy. But sometimes marriage gets centered around the kids and not your covenant. I had my pastor friend, when we, he was doing premarital counseling for Sung and I, he said to me, Tab, you're going to love your children, but you won't be in a covenant with your children. They're going to grow up and they're going to leave the home. Lord willing. No, just kidding. <laughs> you're in a covenant with this one lady. And friends, if you believe that, if you believe this is the most important human relationship you have, it'll check the tendency to drift. You won't coast. You won't put the marriage on cruise control. You will seek to, by grace, deepen and grow in your marriage covenant. And so I want to give you a little homework. I might ask you just to write this question down, that you talk later as husband and wife, and you ask, what, what hinders us from the closest, strongest marriage we can have? And this is not a time for finger pointing, okay? This is not a time for, you're the problem, you always do this, you never do that. So you want to ask this question strategically as, what is hindering us together, okay? <laughs> together from the closest marriage and the strongest marriage we can have. And then ask, secondly, what adjustments would God have us make by His grace? We want to honor, don't we, the sanctity of marriage. Secondly, secondly, we honor as precious the exclusivity of marriage. We honor the exclusivity. God said, let the marriage bed be undefiled because an exclusive marriage reflects his exclusive relationship with his people. And that, that has implications for all of us, doesn't it? As I thought about this by way of application, I think, I think this view of marriage, it shapes for all of us how we relate to members of the opposite gender. It just can shape that for you, that we, we avoid being flirtatious in an inappropriate way, or we, 
we uh, avoid in any way distracting someone from their own marriage covenant because we have this exclusive relationship, this exclusive view of marriage in our minds. I thought about our single adults and our teenagers this way. As, as, someone, as someone who did many relationships very poorly, I think I can say out of personal experience, those who are best prepared for marriage are those who have this high and holy view of marriage. I think that's the best preparation for marriage is to have this biblical view of the exclusivity of marriage. And there's a holy sobriety about that relationship that affects all other romantic relationships before marriage. You have, you have a conviction that you want to, as it were, keep the marriage bed undefiled before any marriage happens. So we let this definition function for all of us, but certainly if you're married, honor Honor the exclusivity of your own marriage. Let no activity, hobby, career pursuit threaten your marriage covenant. And, and let no other person threaten your marriage covenant. That person could be on a screen in, form, in the form of pornography, or well, that person could be an acquaintance, and you're tempted to unfavorably compare your spouse to that person. You're tempted to say, I might be better off with them instead of her or him. And friend, that thought is a threat to your sacred bond. And King Jesus wants to meet you. I don't know if you recall from Hebrews 2, way back before Christmas, Hebrews 2, verse 18, which says, because he, Jesus himself, suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that good news? He can help us as we're tempted. He can help you as you face that temptation. Bring it to him. He can help you. And he can help you through his people. Friend, ask for help. God often helps us through one another. So we honor the sanctity of marriage. We honor the exclusivity of marriage. And one more thing. We honor, we honor as it were, the power of the gospel for marriage. I just mean believe. <laughs> we believe that power of the gospel for marriage. We, we hope in and we rely on the power of Jesus Christ for our marriages. Friends, think about it. There is not a sin for which Jesus did not die. And there is not a pattern in your marriage. There is not a struggle in your marriage that Jesus Christ cannot transform. He is full of grace, as we sang, full of mercy, full of power, seated at the right hand of God, able to help you and help me right now. So hope in Him. If you're discouraged this morning, if you're more aware of deficiencies in your marriage than grace in your marriage, would you run to Jesus right now in your heart? Look, I, 
I know this might be a discouraging message for some people, and I don't want it to be. There might be challenges you're facing, a crisis you're facing. And I ask you to think of that as a stage upon which God wants to meet you. A platform upon which God wants to display His mighty grace in your life. He wants to meet you. He's for you. He's for marriage. He invented it. Think about that. He's for it. It's His idea. He wants to help you. Oh, friends, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ means there is hope for new life in every person here and every marriage here. And so pray to Him. Cry out to Him. I think the best thing I've done, maritally speaking, the last few years is to put my marriage on my prayer list. I know, I should have been there earlier, right? Like, what a dodo head. But I did, finally. I'm going to put my marriage on my prayer list so I see marriage all the time. And I just pray, God, give us fresh affections for each other. Give us fellowship that's deepening. Give us closeness together. Would you protect us? Would you guard us from those thoughts that would threaten our marriage covenant and bless and bless and prosper our one flesh relationship? You know what I can say? The past few years have been the best years of marriage for me and Sung, and I hope she'd say the same. My point is simply, God meets us with His grace. Hope in His power, friend. Hope in the resurrected Savior who is far greater than any challenge you're facing right now. You name the challenge. He's up to the task. And so together, we want to turn and hope in His powerful grace by taking the Lord's Supper together.